by for Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with your host, Drew Kirby. Hey, this is Luke Holmes. I am Morgan Wallen. I'm Riley Green. I'm Travis Denning. Hey, I'm Aaron Lewis. Hey, it's Luke Bryan. I'm Tim McGraw. What's up? This is Ian Munsick. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors, available 24-7 on the radio station's app. You can listen to all of the different episodes we have and reach out and contact us because you may have questions. And now we're into the month of March. February was uh, cold, snowy, windy. Did I mention cold, Janet? (laughs) I think this entire winter can be described as that. And I don't know that March is going to be much different. So I guess buckle in. Hope for April, right? So the only thing we can really rely on are the thoughts of warmth and getting out on our boat, doing some boating and fishing, maybe at Glendo and and all the area reservoirs and and enjoying that summer heat. But it may be a while to get that. But since we're into the month of March, if you have that opportunity to get out on the water, it's important that you're checking in on your aquatic invasive species uh, um, check stations and checkpoints. Isn't it crazy to think that uh, March 1st has come and gone? And in game and fish world, that means that boating check stations um, are open in many different areas and inspections are required. And so normal years, maybe normal is is not the word to use because maybe this winter is more like old day normals, but it it really is, um, you know, just a difference in where we usually are weather-wise this time of year. So people can just be planning ahead and thinking, and Eric is on it. He is here to talk about some of the the changes that people might be wondering about or lack of changes and and where to go and what to do if needed. Yeah, and Eric, as we ended 2022 and began the new year, uh, there were concerns that Glendo and Keyhole uh, may have issues in the AIS check stations. And is that going to be the case? No, in 2023, Drew, um, things will be pretty much back to normal at Glendo and Keyhole inspection-wise. Um, the response last fall was uh, in response to uh, the zebra mussel finding in Pactola Reservoir in the Black Hills, um, which is pretty close to our Wyoming border and a, a serious concern for us And so we had to kind of jump in and do what we could uh, to catch those boats coming in last fall. Um, but over the winter, we've uh, sat down and planned. Um, we're hiring a lot more folks. We're opening new check stations in Newcastle and in Manville uh, to help uh, assist folks finding uh, a check station on their way into the state. And that ended up being the, the major issue is there just wasn't a whole lot of check stations between the border of South Dakota and when you get to those lakes like Lindo. Yeah, and specifically last fall, you know, this kind of really ramped up uh, late in the summer, early in the fall. And that's when we start winding down. And a lot of folks had uh, already ended their jobs or were moving to other locations. Um, so personnel-wise, uh, finding folks to cover uh, the reservoirs, you know, seven days a week, that was the easiest way um, was to make sure that we could catch every boat coming through those boat uh, ramps. Now, for those that may not know what AIS is, can you give us a brief background description of what the aquatic invasive species entails? Yeah, and it it's shocking, you know, we're here, this is 13 years of our program, and there are still people that don't know uh, what our aquatic invasive species are and the threat that they pose to Wyoming waters. And those are species that are non-native uh, to our area. And 
uh, what makes them invasive is not having any uh, predators or, you know, really anything to keep them in check. So uh, as these things are introduced, they have the ability to really explode in population and start to cause issues in uh, food webs and water quality, and things can go downhill from there. Um, zebra and quagga mussels are kind of the, the number one offender and what we're uh, checking for, but there are other aquatic invasive species to be aware of. Um, some of which are even in the state, you know, and so it's just important, even if you're moving from Alcova to Pathfinder or, you know, just local reservoirs to make sure that you're taking those steps in between waters and draining everything and making sure it's clean. And I think Eric really nailed on some important points there, Drew. Um, you know, if you've been out of state and you're coming in state, that inspection is is mandatory before you launch. And those are the, the things that we're really concerned about, because at this point for zebra and quagga mussels, Wyoming is still negative. So we don't want to bring them in from other states that may have them. And then the other portion is there that in-state boater. So if you just go, let's say, Glendo one weekend, Alcova the next, making sure that you are not moving something that, that might be in those waters. So that drain cleaning and drying your boat in between the times that you, you're launching in different bodies of water and even the same body of water really is critical. Um, you know, for example, curly pondweed or New Zealand mud snails, which again are not zebra mussels. They sound the same. They have Zs. They're, they're not from here, but, but we do have them in the North Platte River. So just making sure that, that we're, we're doing those things as boaters, as recreationists, and, you know, even as, as um, waterfowl hunters who are hunting their dog in the water or kayakers who are, you know, just barely getting your toes wet when you launch at a public access area. So all of those those people are critical to helping us keep invasive species out, and, and hopefully we're successful. When someone's taking their boat, say they're going from Pathfinder to Glendo or Pathfinder to Keyhole, how long of a time period should they keep between going into each of those bodies of water? Because obviously, when you go from Glendo to Pathfinder, it's not too far away. So you're still going to have some of those wet areas in your boat by that point. Yeah, that's a great question, Drew. And um, there actually is science behind uh, some of the dry times that folks uh, that we tell folks and that are out there available. Um a lot of it's based off of temperature, humidity, um, things like that. So in the summer when it's hot and dry, you know, those things could dry pretty quick in a matter of a day or so. Um, some of those shoulder seasons in spring and fall when you have lower temperatures, higher humidity, um, it gives a, a better chance for those things to survive and be spread. And really, if you know you were going to the same water within the same day, there are steps that you can take in between waters uh, just to make sure that there's no uh, parts of plants attached anywhere on the boat, uh, especially around the trailer where they like to uh, get pinched in between the bunks and the, the boat there when you're loading. Um, and making sure that, you know, if there is some water standing somewhere, it's as easy as sponging it out or drying it out yourself. So um, there are some... Uh, personal steps that you can do with your craft to ensure that you're not spreading things between waters. And if you do go from, uh, say, Glendo, or uh, let's say Keyhole to Glendo or Pathfinder to, to Glendo, you do have to go to the check station no matter if you've already been to one earlier that day, right? 
Yeah, so the way the Wyoming uh, regulations are written in boat inspections, um, if you pass an open check station in your route of travel, um, you need to stop and either be inspected or show proof of a prior inspection. Um, so at locations like Keyhole and Glendo, where we have a check station there close to the water, um, there is a chance that folks would run into two check stations in a day. Um, but we have methods of making sure that we know those boats have been inspected and it's generally a pretty quick in and out for them when they hit the second check station. Making sure that, that you are doing the, the proper procedures, A, is going to help the boating life and the fishing life for uh, Wyoming's future. Yeah, and I would add, you know, uh, as well as um, doing those steps, it's also going to speed up the inspection process. Because really what we're looking for is things like standing water, mud, or debris. Um, and if those things are cleaned up before they come into the check station and, you know, covers are off of boats and things are available to look at quickly, um, most inspections take less than a few minutes and folks are in and out pretty quick. So, Eric, we know that, that people come from all over the state because the fisheries we have here are some of the top. Glendo is one of the top walleye fisheries that we have in, in Wyoming. And people from South Dakota and Nebraska and Colorado they enjoy coming here and uh, using these waters to catch some fish. They also have to go through the same process. They, as soon as they cross into the state and when they get back to the, the Glendo, when they're coming back in, um, you guys are doing something different this year for those that may be leaving the state but only use the, like the Glendo waters. Yeah, so, and we have in the past offered um, exit inspections as kind of a complimentary service, um, especially for folks, uh, like you said, going out of state and planning on returning to Wyoming. So that'll be just another option, you know, that we want to make sure folks are aware of that if they are leaving Glendo and that check station's open and they plan on coming back to Glendo, um, they can pull in for a quick inspection. We apply a serial numbered seal to that boat. Um, and it attaches the boat to the trailer. So that way we know it hasn't launched. Um, so if that seal is still intact when they come back to Wyoming, um, it's going to be a much quicker process for them. Um, you know, we won't have that uncertainty of if it's been in an infected water or not. So, Does that have an expiration date? Or if, say, someone comes in the end of March, does some fishing, you get the exit uh, inspection, and then you don't come back until August, are you still good to go? Yeah, you would still be do, uh, good to go if that seal is still attached to the boat. Um, the main thing to remember that, you know, this is kind of a service, especially for times that people are traveling when check stations aren't open. Um, but even if you have a sealed boat and you pass an open check station, you still want to pull in and make sure that you're showing them that paperwork and that um, they know that you've been inspected and everything's good to go. And, you know, Drew, one of the things to remember in all these situations is we know that it can be a hassle for boaters to stop. We try to make it as painless as possible. But really, this is an entire effort to keep these out these invasive species out of Wyoming so that we can still boat and fish in Wyoming. And, and that's the reality. And, and if these things happen to get into municipal water sources, it will be affecting the cost of, of what we all pay for water, for what we pay for electricity. Um, and that will affect everyone, not just, you know, recreation, um, recreationists. So it's, it is something that, that we, 
we know um, is a hassle, but we really appreciate how great everybody is and how wonderful everybody treats us when they show up to these inspections. And we do take a few minutes out of their day. But, you know, in the end, I'm pretty sure everybody still wants to be at Glendo and wants to be walleye fishing in Glendo, because if we do get some of these there, we're not sure what's going to happen and we might not have those resources. You know, and we mentioned a lot about boats and fishing, but uh, Janet, you had mentioned a little bit earlier, if you have a kayak or even if you're wade fishing, I mean, you have to have all this taken care of and be inspected there as well, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, any type of watercraft is is subject to an inspection and, and there's lots of specifications in the, the regulations that folks can review or just give us a call and we can give you lengths. We can give you a, whether it's, you know, a blow up. Is it a water toy? Is it a watercraft? We've got all of that stuff. Paddle boards, you know, that's yet another thing that people people aren't thinking about. But all of that, even if you don't need to buy a decal to participate in the program, um, inspections, all of that, you still need to make sure that even if you're out doing um, any sort of water activity that you drain clean and dry, um, even your even your sand buckets that you're playing with on Sandy Beach. Yeah, and I would add to that, um, you know, we uh, have inspected any type of water conveyance that comes into our check stations. So, um, you know, we talk a lot about boating and fishing because it's a pretty popular activity, but you know, this is an important water issue and we do check things like fire trucks and um, hatchery trucks and things that come into the state with out-of-state water. So so it, it really is important. And, you know, you think about your kids just playing in, in the water a little bit and they're wearing water shoes or things like that. You got to make sure that you're taking care of all of those. And, of course, you can always go into the wgfd.wild.gov website and find out more information and get in on all the check stations. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors continues. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Thanks for tuning in to Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Janet Millick, Matt Pollock with us today. And, you know, guys, if you've ever been in Casper and you've seen a train that has graffiti all over it. I mean, there are a lot of those where people will take it upon themselves to design them. It does. It happens a lot. And while you may get to see the the train car graffiti, we get to see the sign bullet holes. If it's not yours, why are you destroying it? First off is what I'd like to say to these people. And shooting up signs is definitely not a good thing because you never know what's on the backside of that sign. That's absolutely correct, Drew. Uh, unfortunately, part of my job uh, requires me to to clean up the the vandalism that that people do. Like you mentioned, the the train cars. Lately, over the last several years, I've several instances of appears to me anyway as gang related uh, graffiti painted on uh, some of our comfort stations. Uh, certainly, we get the the shot signs. Sometimes people are even shooting into the outhouses, and and I always wonder: Are they aware of what's behind them, and and uh, the implications of not just conducting vandalism, which is costly and and incredibly selfish, but uh, you could really hurt somebody or or something. So. Uh, it, it, it's a big problem. Uh, discharging firearms, one of the great things about Wyoming is we have a lot of open spaces, lots of places we can go to shoot and, and enjoy shooting sports. 
but we need to be responsible when we do that, Drew. And, and part of that responsibility is being aware of our backgrounds, but also bring along a target and don't use a, a, a sign or a highway sign or a a building as, as your target. And Matt is being very kind in what he's saying. Matt oversees a lot of the public access areas and wildlife habitat management areas that the Wyoming Game and Fish has. Some of those are um, easements that we have on other people's land. So the Game and Fish does not own them. And some of it is our land. And so a lot of times what happens is, you know, these areas are misused. They leave a lot of trash on them. They shoot up the signs, whatever it might be. And, you know, we can be at risk at losing access to to these fantastic places where we can go easily recreate and enjoy wildlife. I, I've never understood the the motivation for conducting vandalism, but one of the things that, that occurs, as Janet said, is uh, sometimes that's on private property. Then you're showing disrespect to the, the private property owner, and, and that does put our, our easements in, in jeopardy of being lost to the enjoyment of, of the Wyoming people. Recently, I had an incident down near Douglas in which someone set a, an old wooden outhouse on fire and uh, burned it to the ground, but it also ended up catching the, uh, the the base landowner's fence on fire and burned some forage and some trees. It's it's just a mess. Some and, people and, are really crappy. Yeah. <laughs> no pun, pun intended. intended. <laughs> but, you know, in, in all seriousness, Drew, Game and Fish spends between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year replacing signs, dealing with vandalism that we have across these lands um, across the state. And that's really a lot of sportsmen's dollars. I mean, think of the number of fishing licenses that that has to be sold to cover the cost of that. And, you know, ethical and responsible um, sportsmen and women are, are the ones that, that end up paying for it. And so we want to remind people that, you know, um, you can always watch for those things to happen, help us clean things up. And, and if you do see something, don't hesitate to call the Stop Poaching Hotline, which is 1-877-WGFD-TIP. If someone's caught doing vandalism on any of these areas, whether it be an outhouse or shooting a sign, what could happen to them? That's a good question. I'm not a game warden. So the typical law enforcement activity would be the same as if you were on anybody else's land. In uh, some cases we've had where people have been caught, uh, unfortunately it doesn't happen very often, but when we do have those wonderful instances where somebody gets caught, oftentimes we make the, the judge will make those people do community service. And so some of the things that they have to do then are cleaning up the messes that, that they created. So punishment fits the crime. If someone wants to find out more information on, you know, what they can do about this vandalizing, what, how can they reach out to you guys? Call any of your regional offices. Um, you can talk to um, your wildlife habitat and access coordinator or supervisor in the region. So here that's Matt Pollock and they can certainly help you understand, you know, the challenges that they face. And, and it would be great to organize different um, cleanup days or events or anything along those lines. And so uh, those individuals would, would love to hear from the public if they have ideas or just want to help. So over the last few years, there's been a, a phrase that's been used because so many things have happened, but 
see something, say something. And that, that goes right in line here in, in this situation. Always WGFD.wild.gov, a great opportunity for you to find out a lot of information and, and phone numbers and how to contact them. We do greatly appreciate Wildman Game and Fish Department being part of this show each and every week. Another guy that's part of this show is Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. We check in with what's going on at the store and uh, some of the great specials you may want to get in on coming up. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. It's Drew and Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. And Brian, it's it's nice weather for the last week, and it kind of gives you a little itch to get out and do something outside. And, you know, we uh, took a little trip and saw some folks on the North Platte doing some fishing. It's, you know, a great time to get out and do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we say it's nice weather. We're in the 30s, right? So it's way better than what it's been. And, uh, yeah, we're seeing people that are uh, trying to get the itch to get on the on the water. And so uh, the river fishing's, uh, you know, guys are hitting that, especially on the weekends. We're seeing some good traffic. And a lot of guys just uh, kind of getting their boats prepped. Now, we have been talking the last couple of weeks about options you have to kind of give yourself a little something to do and prep the boat, prep your tackle, prep your, your rods and, you know, get your your uh, your hook sharpened or whatever you're doing to get ready to go. Uh, what are we looking at as far as, you know, March is now here. Uh, we'd like to see the water start to break up, but that's not going to happen at some of these bigger reservoirs. But there are some places that we might see some action. Yeah, I mean, the the river systems, you know, especially the tailwaters off of like Gray Reef and uh, down below Glendo or just, you know, wherever wherever we've got tailwater, below Boysen is pretty popular. And so there's a lot of guys out there targeting uh, trout and, and a few walleyes being caught in that those tailwaters as well. We have got a, a great option when it comes to fishing because there are so many different places you could go and ice fishing is still a thing even though we've had uh, you know a couple of warm days when you get to those higher elevations it's still ice fishing weather there's still plenty of re- plenty of uh, ice on the reservoirs for sure so yeah pick a nice day take the kids out throw some tip-ups and uh, you know go enjoy the day you know, and, and one thing that if you're just trying to start out, you, you hear a lot about ice fishing and you hear a lot about, you know, just trying to get out and, and enjoy what we have. Uh, what would the beginner need? What would, you know, just a, a first time family going out ice fishing, what could they get away with and, and be comfortable? Well, I mean, you could you could start with a hand auger, you know, $50 or $49, whatever the case is. Um, but you know, when you're dealing with 20, 25 inches of ice, I mean, that's, that's going to put a wear on a guy. So, I mean, I would still recommend, you know, just a, you know, a electric auger or, um, battery operated one that you could, you know, put on your drill. Um, so you got to get through the ice to, to begin with. And then just depending on how easy it is for you to get through the ice is, you know, probably going to determine how many holes you're going to drill and then whether or not you're going to just sit there with a jigging rod, which pretty easy to do, just move from hole to hole. Um, or you could set up, you know, multiple holes and uh, throw some tip-ups out. Now, when you come into Rocky Mountain Discount Sports, you're going to be able to spend some time around the store. And uh, we've talked a lot this winter because there's been great snow up on the mountain. So people have been able to get up and do some snowshoeing and, and hiking and outdoor adventures. Yeah, you know, we've had some uh, access issues with uh, Castor Mountain Road being closed, but um, I think we're kind of past those those uh, challenges, and uh, it's a great time to get up there on the groom trails and up on the Nordic trails and running the running the um, 
uh, snowshoes around and just getting out and enjoying it. Now, if you have a snow machine or a side-by-side with, with tracks and you're going up on the mountain, you got to make sure you have all the, the proper uh, stickers and, and licenses for that. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a tracked vehicle and you're going to be on any of those trails up there, I think that they uh, want you to have a snowmobile. Um, the uh, snowmobile passes on your side-by-sides. And then, you know, of course, ORV tags, we've got all those available now and they're good for the calendar year. So if you haven't got your machines, um, you know, licensed and tagged, now's a good time to make sure you just kind of get the housekeeping part of, you know, enjoying your summer out of the way, uh, including your state uh, state uh, park passes. And don't forget, if, if you haven't had a, a fishing a license or a hunting license, then you got to get it every year. It, it, it is year to year now, and it starts not at the first of the year. It's when you bought it, right? Yeah, the licenses uh, are based on when you purchased them. And so we're seeing a lot of people, and it gets kind of confusing because you might have bought your fishing license in January, but you might have bought your conservation stamp in April, and they're going to expire at different times. And there's really no way to kind of catch those up so that they're uh, at the same time. So Make sure that your conservation stamp is still good, your fishing license is still good, because uh, they are going to be 365 days now from when you purchased them. Now, one thing that we have talked about is the fact that if you did that, if you did do a layered thing, that you could go ahead and buy your fishing and it'll automatically take over when it, it's due. Yeah, absolutely. So if your license expired March 1st, but your conservation stamp doesn't expire until May 1st, Go ahead and renew that uh, conservation stamp because it'll take 365 days from the May date. You know, so you're not losing you're not losing ground. Uh, so make sure you. I mean, if you've got the funds, just do it so you don't forget. Stop on in, see them at Rocky Mountain Discount Sports for anything you need in the outdoors. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. Drew, along with Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. Brian and I did something pretty interesting the, this week. We went out to Dan Spee's Fish Hatchery because the North Platte Walleye Club donated some tanks. And Brian, that experience is just outstanding. I tell you what, I've, I've lived here 20 years and I do a lot of hunting out that direction. And I have never been to the facility, but I can't tell you how impressed and surprised I was with the uh, what they've done out there. One thing that I learned, Brian, on our tour was that this whole situation at Dan Spees is funded because of every person that goes out and buys their hunting and fishing license. Yeah, that's kind of one of the misconceptions that, you know, I, I too thought that, you know, a lot of their funding came out of the general fund, but almost all of it is funded just through our game and fish hunting and fishing licenses. And the reason we were actually there was to see the new tanks that you guys at the North Platte Walleyes had just donated to Game and Fish. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, Wyoming's always been known for is their trout fisheries and then just the number of different trout species that we have throughout the state. And the Game and Fish has always done a really good job of um, raising those those trout and spreading them out throughout the state. So. Now, um, the last couple of years, they've been kind of experimenting with raising some walleyes. And warm water species had never really been even in their wheelhouse or think something they thought about doing. But they've had some success out here at Spees based on the water condition, water temperatures that they get out of the ground. Came to the North Platte Walleyes Club and, and had a need for possibly purchasing a couple of stock tanks that they could, larva tanks they call them, to, to raise these walleyes. And 
with the addition of these uh, tanks that we purchased and that they're getting plumbed in out there, uh, they think they're going to be able to raise an additional 120 to 180,000 walleyes per year. And that's just on the first year, so who knows what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously with the uh, threat of aquatic invasive species, um, you know, anytime that the Game and Fish brings any type of water, you know, in, with, that has fish in it from out of state, there's always a chance that we're going to introduce some kind of um, bad, bad, bad critter. So uh, by trying to become uh, self-sufficient to raise our own walleye and crappie and perch and catfish and all those other warm water species that we have here in the state, um, it's going to be huge for, for the state of Wyoming. It's really interesting the number of people that know that trout are king here, but walleye, huge in Glendo and all of the different reservoirs, but that's not where we stop. We've got all kinds of fish that are hatched right here at Dan Speeds, which is pretty neat. Yeah, they're going to have the ability to do just about whatever they want or whatever their needs are. And uh, it's interesting to find out, you know, really how many different fish hatcheries there are throughout the state, the different species of trout and other uh, species of just fish in general that they have the ability to to raise. So um, they are looking at uh, building a new facility uh, that hopefully will someday, you know, be able to support that warm water um, hatchery. Um, that's to be told. You know, it's it's, it's working its way through uh, legislature and, and and funding process. But um, there's there's some really cool things that are that are going on in Wyoming. You know, and we went on this trip with a lot of the board from the North Platte Walleye Club and our friend Greg, uh, who has been hunting and fishing for a long time, and he was even pretty. Uh, taken aback by what was going on there. Yeah, you know, just kind of listening to the progression of what used to be, you know, the the old school trout runs where, you know, they're they're no longer using those, but they're using fiberglass tanks that are, you know, in a more controlled environment. And just seeing where they've come along uh, over the years and the technology that's that's in there and the pounds of fish, I think, what they tell us, there was a, they, they, they used to be like 140,000 pounds of fish a year, and, and now they're up over 300,000 yeah, pounds of Which really is how we have the opportunity that we have with so many species, and we kind of take that for granted. Yeah, and we, we kind of forget that, you know, sometimes, you know, you might go out to the Miracle Mile, and you're like, man, there's a car or two at every, every t- turn off, and there's a guy fishing the hole that I want to fish in, but... You know, the pressure that we see here is nothing compared to our surrounding states like Colorado and Idaho and Utah. And so, I mean, we have to be a little bit understanding with the, of the other people that are around. But, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to fish walleyes, you know, from here to Green Bay and uh, Escanaba, um, Michigan. And, you know, pound for pound, you know, we, we've got some of the best fishing, you know, in the country. And so to you know just absorb that a little bit and be appreciative for what we do have here um it's it's a great place to be yeah and we have the north platte walleyes groups like that that try to grab the kids and get them involved to really enjoy what we have yeah you know the the north platte walleye club in general is kind of a it's a smaller organization it's not doesn't have a big national name doesn't have a big national support group right um but what is awesome about that that organization is that 100% of the proceeds that they raise through their fund fundraising efforts 
100% of it stays right here in Wyoming. We don't have to send any money off to any national organizations. We don't have any paid CEOs or CFOs or paid board members. Um, if we raise a, a dollar, that dollar goes back into the community. And so a lot of people don't know what we've done because we just we don't do a very good job of advertising it. Mm -hmm. But every time that you've gone to Yesness Pond Fishing Derby um, or you've gone to uh, the, the Fit Game and Fish Expo in the past years, those fishing poles that have been given out to those kids has come through the North Platte walleyes. And the life jacket uh, that you see at, at some of these, uh, you know, Morad Park and some of those areas around here, those life jackets originated through the, the North Platte walleyes and the fire department. We, and again, this year we're donating another 200 life jackets. We have a scholarship program up at Casper College. I mean, it goes on and on. We just bought stock tanks of those larva tanks out at Game and Fish uh, to help enhance the walleye fishing throughout the years. So um, it is one of the organizations in this area that I full-heartedly believe in. And uh, they've got a, a all-you-can-eat walleye banquet coming up April 15th. And that is our primary you know, resource for funding. And so a uh, real important date for us to, to generate some revenue and to, to raise some money for to, to help supporting, especially the kids' events in the, in, the, in the state. Awesome. Thanks again, Brian. We talked last week about a friend of ours, Greg, who was out doing some uh, hunting and shot a couple of geese and had a couple of eagles swoop in. We're going to talk to Melissa Hill from the Raptor Center up in Cody to kind of give an idea of what those eagles and hawks and, and birds are going through at this time. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. And we're back. You can always hit us up in the radio station's app to get more information from us. Or if you've got an idea or a question, be sure to reach out and let us know. We talked a couple of weeks ago about some eagles dive bombing some goose hunters. And what are they up to during the winter and how do they react? We reached out to Melissa Hill from the Buffalo Bills Center of the West Raptor Center to kind of get in on what these birds are up to now. And Melissa, you guys have just started up your programs, but what do you guys do during the winter? Just work with the birds that you have there? Yeah, we do. Um, normally we do a lot of training with volunteers so they can start on new birds that they've never worked with. Um, we might try to do different things with some of the birds. Um, most of our birds are unable to fly because of wing issues, but we have a couple birds that can do a little bit of flying. And so we might do some exercise with them, or we've spent a lot of time this winter uh, with our new magpie. We got a magpie back in August, and so we're still um, getting used to her and and she's kind of an interesting case because she doesn't actually know how to be a magpie, but she also doesn't think she's a person like our turkey vulture does. So little things like that. Yeah, just working on some training with birds and a lot of training with volunteers. When you say that she doesn't know she's a magpie, is it because you got her so young? Well, so what happened, she was found on the ground as a nestling. So mm -hmm. I, she barely had any feathers when someone found her. They thought she was really sick. They took her into a rehabber in Utah, and this was right in the middle of all of the avian influenza, the first round. And all of her tests came back clear. They couldn't find anything wrong with her. They couldn't put her back in the nest where she came from. And so they were trying to find another magpie that was in a rehabilitation center. But because of influenza, nobody was taking in any magpies or crows 
uh, a lot of a lot of different birds weren't being taken in and so they had her with a little stuffed animal magpie so that she could kind of see what she looks like hoping to get her in with another magpie and they never found one so she never learned how to be a magpie from adult magpies but she also wasn't around people to imprint on people and think that she's a person so she really is just doesn't know exactly how to behave or where she fits in so she's getting more and more used to the human world so we're working on that a lot with her Uh, just a little bit ago you mentioned about the avian flu we all know it is driving the price of eggs up and it's really affecting a lot of the uh the birds that we deal with or see on a daily basis and it's been pretty rough it's been a stressful year. We're coming up on a year that it's been around. There's no end in sight. And it's a constant fear of, you know, if our birds are exposed, raptors are incredibly susceptible to the strain that's prominent right now. And so, you know, if, if they catch it, the odds are they will not survive. And it would probably sweep through and potentially take out all of our birds. Oh, wow. So it's a constant worry. And this really terrorizes the birds and kills them instantly or eventually. Yeah, it kind of depends. Um, uh, I'm actually getting ready to do a presentation for our volunteers and some of the staff here about avian influenza. And the first symptom that is listed is sudden death. And that's one of the, the things with wildlife, too. Their natural behavior is don't show that you are in trouble. Because if you look sick, you're going to get picked off by a predator. So a lot of the times we won't be able to tell that something is sick until it's so sick it can't stand, it can't function, or until it's dead. Because their instinct is to hide that so that, you know, a different predator doesn't come and see them being vulnerable and then end up killing them. But you could also end up finding a bird that is struggling and it might not be influenza. It could be lead poisoning. It could be... um, an injury, it could be a disease, it could be anything. But, you know, getting them in for help could be the difference between life and death. Have you guys seen any cases at the Raptor Center or in Cody in general? Yes, we have. Uh, So at the Raptor Experience, we don't do any rehabilitation ourselves. We are permitted strictly for education. But we do have Ironside Bird Rescue right here in Cody. And unfortunately, they have seen quite a few cases of avian influenza um, over this last year. And I know, I remember one week alone, that rehabilitation facility lost, I think it was four or five raptors in one week to influenza. And then the other big problem that our rehabber really sees, especially in our eagles, is lead poisoning. So she does get quite a few cases, particularly eagles that are coming in with some lead toxicity. Sometimes she can help them through that. Sometimes they're so sick, she just can't save them. Mm. You mentioned eagles there, and a friend of mine was out goose hunting. He uh, shot a couple of geese, and then all of a sudden, a couple of eagles (laughs) swooped in and, and took his harvest. That's terrible for your friend, but I'm sure the eagles were like, oh, look at that. Yeah, an E.T. buffet. Yeah, this is such a harsh time of year, and it's been such a rough winter. We have more snow, which covers the ground, which makes it harder to find their food. Um, And then, you know, along the roadsides, when the plows come through, they might cover up the roadkill that is typically available for them. So a lot of the scavengers are really struggling at at a time like this. So when they see something easy, they're going to take advantage of it. 
how much does does a winter like we've had really affect the birds? I mean, could there be a major die-off from starvation, or do are they able to kind of make ends meet? Yeah, you know, it seems to us it seems so harsh, and you know because we don't see thousands of raptors at a time. They're not big flock animals like geese and ducks. So when you see, you know, one or two birds that are dead on your normal drive, let's say, that's significant because that's a huge proportion of what you would normally see. But realistically, it's not going to be devastating for their populations. And one of the reports I was reading was even with the influenza, even with the number of birds that we're seeing affected by it, it's not going to wipe out a species. It's not going to really have a horrible impact on the, let's say the golden eagles of Wyoming. So they, they'll rebound, you know, they might have lower numbers for a year or two, but the way that wildlife works is there's ups and downs always, whether it's your food has really gone down so you're struggling to just find food this year so you don't produce as many young and so we've got a couple years of low numbers of of these raptors or if it is a disease that comes through we're going to have ups and downs and they usually are going to rebound it's it's hard to watch um for someone especially like me who's so passionate about Mm -hmm. these birds but you know that they're going to recover um from something that's more natural like this Storms and and rough winters are a natural part of life for wild animals. You've been doing this a long time all over the state. Is there a big difference between northern Wyoming, central Wyoming, and southern Wyoming when it comes to this topic? Yeah, it really, it all kind of evens out um, no matter where you are when it comes to stuff like this. So you might get harder hit, you know, in the southern part of the state one year, and then three, four years later, it's just you know, horrible, horrible in the northern part of the state. So they're going to have different fluctuations. But if you if you look at the data over, you know, 100 years, realistically, they're probably going to be about the same. They're they're going to average their populations are going to up and down pretty much in the same way. But there's still a lot of research going on about that. Um, and so I don't have great numbers about any of those things, but that's in general what I've seen over my 25 years of paying attention. Talking with Melissa Hill from the Raptor Center up in Cody. And uh, Melissa, you guys have started your daily um, programs. You'll bump that up at the end of May. And what are some of the things people will learn at these programs? So the main focus of what we do is to teach folks about the natural history of the birds. So what kind of bird they are, what they eat, where they live, and then a lot of why they're so incredible. And one of the things that's really nice about our programs, especially in our slower season, our volunteers are presenting these programs. So you get their perspective and you get a lot of personal information. So they'll, they love to tell you about why they think this bird is so amazing, what's so intriguing about it. Um, and usually it's their favorite bird. And then the next day they're holding a different bird and that's their favorite bird. That's really fun. And I think that's um, one of the neat things that our guests get to learn about when they come to our programs. That's really cool. It's at the uh, Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody and uh, those Programs now are at 1 o'clock from March 1st and through uh, May 28th. Melissa, every time I talk to you, I learn a little more. That's what I'm aiming for. Thanks so much for having me on, Drew. 
Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with Drew Kirby. If you have a question, want to make a comment, or have an idea for a show topic, message us on the My Country mobile app. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors.